listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. If you have your Bibles, would you take them and open them up to the book of Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. We're going to be looking at the the ninth commandment. So we've made our, our way through this series, and this is to, the second to last sermon in this series on the Ten Commandments. So if you're there with your Bibles open, we're looking at verse 16, which reads, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Well, let's go to the Lord and pray, asking Him to use this word to change us. Oh, Father, we are so thankful that we can draw near to you at any time, any place, anywhere. And we can draw near to you because Jesus has passed through the heavens and he is our great high priest. And so we come to you with confidence knowing that you will give us exactly what we need because you are our Father. And you've cleansed us and you've purified us. And so we rejoice in you as we look into your word. Your word teaches us that you are our Savior. The psalmist says, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. And so, Father, in this time, we cast aside all of these false hopes and we run to you. Only you can save. Only you can deliver. And that's our song, and our joy. And Father, in these days and weeks and months, we pray that you would continue to press that truth deep down into our hearts, that that would be our song and our hope day by day. Father, we pray that, we pray and ask that you would strengthen us in this season of life, that even as we're scattered about across the city, that you would fill our hearts with joy. Would you give us faithfulness to press into your words? Would you give us faithfulness to continue to pray? And Would you give light to our eyes and joy to our hearts? We do ask that you would fill us with joy in this season, regardless of our circumstances. Father, we turn to your word now. Your word is good and it's true and it's right. It's more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey. Father, we ask that you would teach us now with this ninth commandment. Father, we pray that as this word is preached, that you would even change us in this moment, that you would begin to renew our minds, rewriting patterns and ways of living. Father, we pray that you would bring us into greater conformity with Jesus, that you make us look like him more and act like him more and think like him more and feel like him more and love like him more. Oh, Father, we love your word. We ask that you would bless your word to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love is patient and kind. Love does not boast or envy. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. And so what do all of these passages have in common? Answer, they, they speak to the Christian's relationship with the truth. The Christian rejoices in the presence of the truth, breaking into song and dance. The, the Christian seeks, the Christian pursues the truth as if it is a great and, and precious treasure. The Christian speaks the truth, using the truth, trafficking the truth. And all the more as we come to the ninth commandment, Christians abstain from lies, refusing to use their mouths in the service of wickedness. And when we look at the ninth commandment, we find a portrait of the redeemed Christian. But before we do anything else in this sermon, we need to do this first. We need to take some time and define the ninth commandment. And so when we consider our text as it stands in its context, Exodus chapter 20, and the surrounding context of Old Testament law, we find that the commandment has a very narrow focus. And that focus is the courtroom. But it's even more particular than that. It only addresses one individual in the courtroom. It doesn't address the judge. It doesn't address the defendant. Rather, it sets its vision on the witness. And there's good reason for this. Everything in Old Testament legal proceedings depended upon human eyes and human ears. In a trial, someone would have to stand up and say, I saw that, I heard that, I was there, and this is what really happened. There was no recourse in those days to, to have DNA evidence or to have surveillance video or a body cam video or cell phone pinging, any of those things. And we find this whole procedure laid out for us in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. But herein lies the problem and consequently the need for the ninth commandment. Humans like you and me are, are easily swayed. So at first the matter seems black and white, but all of a sudden when personal gain or personal losses is involved in the situation, everything becomes a bit gray and hazy. All of a sudden everything is open to creative interpretation. And so for a witness, there's motivation to favor the rich. The witness thinks in his mind, well, if I, if I give favor to the rich, perhaps you'll share some of his riches with me. Perhaps you'll do a favor for me. And there's a motivation to favor the poor. You just can't stand that rich guy. And if you, if you side with the poor, you'll take that rich guy down a notch. And there's the motivation to follow along with the crowd. If you follow along with the crowd, you'll get their applause and their approval and they'll pat you on the back. And so Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 through 3 warns like this. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. 
You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall, you, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit suing with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. And so justice will falter and society will be given over to violence when witnesses are corrupted. When they're corrupted by greed, pursuing money. When they're corrupted by anger, or controlled by anger with vendettas. And so when we come to Psalm 27, we find in Psalm 27 the Messiah of Israel praying to the Lord explicitly that he would be delivered from such witnesses. He says this, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. And so we see that a false witness is not simply a lie or someone who's told a fib, but at the end of the day, a, a perpetrator of violence. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 18 makes this fact clear. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. And so we can define the ninth commandment like this in its context. The commandment calls witnesses to conform, to conform their testimony to the truth. Not leaving out the facts, not twisting the facts or, or fabricating the facts, but conforming their testimony, their words, their speech to the truth for the good of their neighbor and society. But from how we began this sermon, remember 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, whatever is true, think about these things. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, speak the truth with his neighbor. There seems to be more entailed in the ninth commandment than just the courtroom and the, the witness's role within a, a trial. It seems from these texts that this commandment should touch upon every aspect of our, our humanity. What we love, what we pursue, what we seek, what we talk about. So the question is, well, well, how do we get there? How do we get to those things from the, the ninth commandment as it stands in its context? Well, we can reason rather simply here. If a witness must tell the truth in the most dramatic of settings, what's the most dramatic setting you can think of in, in the matter of truth-telling? What's the courtroom? There's the witness, and, and there stands before him the defendant, and the defendant's life hangs upon what that witness will say. Will that defendant live? Will that defendant die? It depends upon that witness and that witness's testimony. And so if a witness must tell the truth in the most dramatic of settings, surely truth-telling is important everywhere else, in the marketplace, with the family, among friends, in the neighborhood. If God cares about speech in this avenue of the courtroom, surely He cares about speech everywhere else and that it conforms to the truth. And so we find Jesus doing this very thing, reasoning like this in the Sermon on the Mount. If the law condemns murder, it also then condemns unrighteous anger. If it's sinful to go kill your brother, then it is also sinful to insult your brother. If the law condemns adultery, surely then it condemns unlawful lust. Surely it's a, a sin to sleep with another man's wife, but it's also a sin to look with lust at another woman, Jesus tells us. And so with Jesus as our teacher, the ninth commandment begins to push and prod us at all sorts of different levels. It, it asks us, do you speak the truth? Do you carefully guard your mouth from spreading lies and participating in slander and sharing that piece of juicy gossip? 
But it doesn't stop there at that level. It goes deeper. It asks, do you pursue the truth, seeking it as a treasure? And deeper still, do you ardently love the truth? Do you hate what is false? And all of a sudden, with Jesus' logic operating in our minds, the ninth commandment isn't a moral, isn't a moral nicety but a word that comes and bears down upon us and reveals the very deep inclinations at work in our hearts. And so with the commandment probing us, we need to stop here and ask, well, what does this commandment reveal about us? What does it expose? Now, this is where the work gets difficult. Because when we hear the words of the commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your your neighbor, our minds run and think about the big sins. We think about slander and perjury and bold-faced lying. And so with that standard, the, the test is rather easy to pass. When we think about those things, we look into our hearts and we say, well, our hearts are in actually pretty good shape. I don't really seem to struggle with those things. But here we meet the wisdom of the church. The larger Westminster Catechism holds up the stop sign to us and says, we need to rethink all of this. So we can go to the Westminster Catechism and find some help as we work on our hearts with the Ninth Commandment. And so the Catechism begins with a question, as it always does. It asks, what are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? What do you need to do, essentially? And in the following, it gives something we would expect to find. It says, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart, Sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matter of judgment and justice. So if you think about it, that was some, that's something you would probably hear in any courtroom around the world. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And again, as we think about it, that's a pretty easy test to pass. No slander, no perjury, no bold-faced lying here. But what's interesting as you study the catechism is what the catechism says right before this piece about the truth. Preceding these words about appearing and standing for the truth and all that I said, it says this. The duties required in the ninth commandment are the, pers- are the preserving and the promoting of truth between man and man and the good name, and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. And so do you see what the catechism is doing here? It won't let us think about the ninth commandment in in abstract terms. Do you believe in absolute truth? Do you condemn relativism? No, it's doing something different. It directs our gaze to the relational level, to what happens between a man and a man and between a woman and a woman. And it's here in this relational context that we learn the, the true inclination of our hearts, whether we really love the truth and seek the truth and speak the truth with our whole being or not. In fact, this is the very logic we find at work throughout the Scriptures. For instance, 1 John. John tells us this. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So how can we know if we're walking in the truth and loving the truth and seeking the truth? Well, this is so interesting. John doesn't present us with a 250-question theological exam. No, what does he do? Well, he looks at the practicalities of our life. What does he also do? Well, he goes and he looks at the relationships in our life. John preaches to us. He says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, 
and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So you see the logic of John. How can you know if you're walking in the truth, a lover of the truth? Well, look at some of these practical areas in your life because they're going to reveal your heart. And so from the larger Westminster Catechism and operating with the, the logic of 1 John... We're going to run three diagnostic tests on our heart, looking at our relationships to see what those might reveal about what's going on inside of our hearts. And so the first test we're going to run is just a simple question. What do you assume, what do you assume about your neighbor? So the catechism says this, we sin when we, quote, misconstruct the intentions, words, and actions of our neighbor. And so this is a sin we commit throughout all stages in our life. So for a really easy illustration, we can think about the little girl playing on the the playground. And she gets shoved to the ground. And when she gets shoved to the ground, her, her creative mind goes to work right away. And she starts to build an elaborate understanding of what happened to her. A little boy pushed me over. What does this mean? Well, this little boy must hate me. He must be entirely mean. What's going on here? Well, this little girl fails to give that little boy the benefit of the doubt. She's assuming something about him. Perhaps it was an honest mistake. Perhaps he was just running around the corner out of control. Perhaps he slid down the slide with with too much gusto. That doesn't mean he hates you or is essentially an entirely mean. You might need more information. And so we're tempted to commit this sin every day. The text message pops up on our, our phone. The email dings and our mind's set to work instantly. We quickly begin to build a whole narrative out of a little message. All the while, our, our, our blood pressure is, is rising, ticking up, up and up and up. And our, our mind refuses to let go of the matter. And we ruminate on it hour after hour. And before we know it, we've already tried and judged and condemned that person in question. And the truth is that when we're quick to rush to judgment and quick to impute wrong to others, we show that we have little love for the truth. Lovers of the truth are patient, willing to wait for the facts to come in and present themselves. Lovers of the truth are willing to be be generous, looking and straining to see if there's a better way to go about this. Lovers of the truth are, are hopeful, ready to take the high ground. In my study this week, I came across what John Frame wrote in his his commentary on the Ninth Commandment, he says, we have a responsibility to put the best construction on other people's words and behavior unless there's a cogent witness to the contrary, what the Bible calls two or three witnesses. That means we are to give one another the benefit of the doubt on the principle of innocent until proven guilty. And the Catechism, going back to the Westminster Catechism, talks about this. It says, a Christian is to hold his neighbors with charitable esteem. This means that a Christian is ever ready to receive a good report and has an unwillingness, we could say, a reluctancy to admit an evil report. So we can press this in upon us. What do you assume about your neighbor? Does your heart trend towards charity and patience, generosity and hope, or does it trend towards distrust? Are you quick to make hasty judgments about your neighbor? And how you answer these questions is going to reveal what the, what's going on in your heart, the inclinations towards truth, whether you love it and seek it and speak it. 
So that's the first test. What do you assume about your neighbor? And this brings us to a second test. What in your neighbor prompts, what in your neighbor elicits your emotions? So going back to the catechism, it says this. We break the commandments by, quote, grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy. What is the catechism saying? Well, it's saying in sin, our emotions are all backwards, upside down, and inside out. Instead of rejoicing over our neighbor's success, what do we often do? We weep, we grieve over it. Instead of grieving over our neighbor's sin and folly, we rejoice over it. And this is so easy to do in our day. You log on to Facebook or Instagram or whatever medium you log into and you're presented with the success of your neighbor. Post after post, picture after picture reveals the good things that your neighbors are experiencing. A new house, a vacation, the success of their children, their own success. What happens? What are we prone to do? Well, we might hit the like button. Secretly, inwardly, we, we grieve. We grieve over it. And this works the opposite way as well. In our day, discernment blogs and discernment YouTube channels abound everywhere. And when we go to these channels or these blogs, we we are presented with the failures of our, our neighbors. Failure after failure after failure. And when we're on these blogs or YouTube channels, what happens in our heart? Well, deep down inside of us, we're we're prone to rejoice. We say in our heart, finally that guy got what he deserved. Or finally, that that woman has been cut down to size. There's a little bit of glee in there. John Calvin, as he comments on the ninth commandment, says this, and he, he really pushes this matter into our heart, revealing what this is all doing. He writes this, We sinners delight in a certain poisoned sweetness, experienced in ferreting out and in disclosing the evil of others. And let us not think in an adequate excuse if in many instances we are not lying. For he who does not allow a brother's name to be sullied by falsehood also wishes it to be kept unblemished as far as truth permits. Did you hear what he said? We sinners delight in a certain poisoned sweetness experienced in ferreting out and disclosing the evil of others. Calvin gets us. He gets the way our hearts work, what makes us tick. Think about this. When the the news comes out about someone's downfall, it might be a celebrity you've never met, it might be a family just down the street, what are we so prone to do? Well, we're prone to start acting like mangy raccoons. We jump right into the pile of garbage with little hesitation, and we start looking around for any juicy scrap we can sink our teeth in. We're just in the mess. We're right there in the garbage And we're so happy about it. And Calvin says, that's a a poison sweetness. And so what's wrong with all of this? Well, this attitude reveals that we really don't love the truth. Even more, we really don't love our neighbor or want good for our neighbor. And so we can ask, well, what do your emotions do? Are they aligned with the teaching of the Scriptures? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice? Do you weep with those who weep? 
Or do you have it all backwards? Are your emotions turned inside out and backwards? And again, how you answer that question as you think about your life and where your heart runs and what your emotions do, they're going to reveal what's going on inside of you, whether you love the truth and seek the truth and speak the truth. So what in your neighbor prompts or elicits, brings out your emotions? That's going to reveal your heart. This brings us to the third test, and we can ask, do you speak the truth rightly? So the catechism says this, we sin by, quote, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning or in doubtful and equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice. There's a lot there, but did you hear it? Did we get that wrong? The catechism is saying we can actually sin by speaking the truth. We can sin by speaking the truth. Yes, according to the Scriptures, it's not sufficient just to speak the facts, just to have our facts straight. We must also speak the truth in the right manner at the right time before the right audience and for the right end, for the right goal. And so when we speak the truth with a loud voice and red ears and red cheeks, we have to ask ourselves, are we speaking the truth rightly or are we just giving vent to our anger? When we explode with the facts and they just pour out of our mouths like lava out of a volcano, we have to ask, are we speaking the truth rightfully? Or are we just venting our spleen, just, just spilling it all out there? And when we shout forth the facts, not paying attention to who we are speaking to, we have to ask, are we speaking the truth rightfully the way the Scriptures want us to speak the truth? So what must we do? Well, we have to speak the truth at the right time. Timing matters. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. And we must speak the truth in the appropriate manner. How you say it actually matters. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. And all the more the goal, the end you have in sight for truth-speaking matters. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That it may give grace to those who hear. And so we need to give examination to our speech. Do we speak the truth rightfully? Or do we wield the truth like a dangerous weapon? We've got this great knife and we're just slashing it back and forth and we really have no idea what we're doing. We have truth but it can hurt everyone around you. Does your speech give grace to those around you or does it cause contention and trouble? And so when we ask these questions of our our hearts, we're going to see our hearts. We're going to see the inclinations of what's going on. What do we actually love? What do we actually seek? So it's at this point that we can again go back to how we began this sermon. 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, whatever is true, think about these things. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, speak the truth with your neighbor. And the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So do those words describe your heart? Are they written in large print all over your life? Do you love the truth? Do you seek the truth? Do you speak the truth? And it's at this point that we need the balm of the gospel 
Brothers and sisters, we're not just called to speak the truth and contend for the truth and live up to the truth. No, there is more for us. We are called to trust in the truth and to receive the truth and hope in the truth and to enjoy the truth. And brothers and sisters, the gospel is the word that we need today. For in the gospel we find truth. Jesus is revealed to us as what? The way, the truth, and the life. And the truth comes offering us salvation. He beckons to us saying, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And brothers and sisters, Jesus' words are true. Why? Because he is the faithful and true witness. And so it's imperative in light of all that we have done in this sermon, looking at our hearts, that we make use of the gospel today. We have to make use of the gospel today, and we make use of the gospel today by speaking the truth. Lies are only overcome by the truth. And so the gospel calls us to participate in it by speaking the truth. And so if we want to experience the power of the gospel today, we must first speak the truth about ourselves. The Scriptures teach us, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. So what does this mean? Well, to experience the gospel, we must come clean to God. We must speak the truth, revealing our our failures and sins to God. And this has to happen again and again. We cannot be confused on this matter. The Christian is to ever be speaking the truth about himself or herself to God in confession. And we do this. We do this because God promises to wash us and make us whole. He promises to forgive us and cover all that we have done and said and loved and felt. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, if we speak the truth about ourselves, the Word says this, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Glory there for us. Good news there for us. And so we want to experience the gospel. We need to speak the truth about ourselves to God. And there's a second matter as well. If we want to experience the gospel today, we need to speak the truth about Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13 say this If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. And again, we cannot be confused about this matter. We are to ever be speaking the truth about Jesus. This word of truth is to be always on our lips. Even more, is to take up residence. It is to, to dwell in us. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Brothers and sisters, we do this with great confidence. We speak the truth about Jesus with great confidence. When we speak about the name of Christ to ourselves, to our family members, to our neighbors, we do so expecting to experience the great things of God because there is power in the name of Jesus, power to forgive sin and to overcome the flesh, power to raise the dead from life. Jesus comes to us, the truth comes to us and says this, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And that's our hope. Is we can overcome the lies in us and around us by what? By speaking the truth. We speak the truth about ourselves to God and we speak the truth about Jesus and we experience His great power as He works in and through us. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank You for the ninth commandment. We need it. Well, Father, we pray and ask that You give us repentance. We ask that You would change our hearts. We ask that You would lead us to the truth. And, oh, Father, we want and we desire to be a people who speak the truth about ourselves. We desire to be a people who live lives of confession. Would you help us with this? We desire to be a people who speak the truth about Jesus. Would you help us with this? Oh, Father, we pray. Would your word have its way with us now? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.